Christians often talk about the horror of sin, but they have overlooked something. They keep talking as if everyone were a great sinner, when the truth is, nowadays one is hardly up to it. This is a quote by Walker Percy. He was a Southern Catholic writer, and uh, when he was young, his grandfather committed suicide, and then later his father and his mother, and uh, they were all very wealthy. And I think this sort of sets the backdrop for a lot of his ideas and the things he struggled with and eventually the places that he came to through those struggles. But um, this speaks to where people are today, where the world is. I think that we're in this sort of haze of um, not even really having the energy to sin in some ways, that in in some ways, even uh, going out and having some one-night stand is too much work. And it's that very nature of sin to take from you the thing that it hooked you with, you know, to take what it initially gave. And I can see how, as our society is very wealthy by, um, you know, historic standards, that it's become very bored. I heard the other day that boredom is the supreme evil. Think about this in the context of Antifa, of these, you know, young, uh, upper-middle-class communists. For many of them, I think the choice was, well, I'm either going to be a revolutionary or I'm just a barista. That boredom drives much of what we think of as evil. And that in today's world, we almost are too cynical to even sin. I heard somewhere that um, you know, that suicide is a rejection of all of creation. That is much closer to where I believe we are as a culture. So I'm going to read one more piece from Walker Percy here um, about the, the state of the modern world. Writing in the second half of the 20th century, Walker Percy saw that even amidst external peace and prosperity, the Western soul was haunted by anxiety and depression. In his first and most famous novel, The Moviegoer, Percy names this modern disease the malaise. The novel follows Binks Bowling, a scion of a well-to-do New Orleans family who tries and fails to content himself with a lavish existence of money-making and philandering. He works as a stockbroker, he dates his secretaries, and he patronizes the local cinema. Yet he has a neurotic streak that keeps him at an ironic distance from his ordinary life and makes him a philosopher in spite of himself. His habitual movie-going is even consciously an enactment of the distance between himself and his own life. He is a spectator, trapped inside his own head, watching his bodily life like a projection on a screen, shrouded in a fog of malaise. His neuroticism and irony are what make him conscious of the malaise and able to articulate it. The malaise is the pain of loss. The world is lost to you, the world and the people in it. And there remains only you, and you are no more able to be in the world than a ghost. He is present, yet absent, alive, yet not really alive. He is cut off from himself. His feeling of unreality is echoed by the novel's other leading character, his cousin, Kate. Suffering from anxiety, depression, and bouts of mania, Kate also sees her daily life as ghostly and inauthentic. She finds any break from this dim existence, even a disaster, like the car wreck that killed her fiancé, a great relief.
Have you noticed that only in times of illness or disaster, people are real? I remember at the time of the wreck, people were so kind and helpful and solid. Everyone pretended that our lives until that moment had been every bit as real as that moment itself, and that the future must be real too. The truth was, our reality had been purchased only by my fiancé's death. Kate describes the chaos in the wake of the accident as the happiest moment of her life. While that sentiment may seem morbid, Percy means to underscore how strongly the human soul longs to break free from the malaise. That's, that's very grim, obviously, but there's something about that that is deeply true of the way that modern people feel, that we are very... Um, that we view ourselves as just something that goes around the world, consuming whatever will momentarily distract us from all the bigger questions. That noise is our preoccupation. We are not preoccupied with God, with life or death or marriage, with things of permanence. In fact, our culture actively tears down anything of permanence. I find this very fascinating that on the most progressive edge of our society, you will see a condemnation of having children, basically very little regard for traditional family structure, and even less regard for the idea of God. Yet, at the end of your life, those are the only things with any amount of permanence. So there's something within the spirit of our time that wants to tear down permanence. In the video that the World Economic Forum put out about the Great Reset, one thing they said that will happen, you know, that they projected about the future is that in the future everything will be rented, that no one will really own anything, and that that will be the human norm. And they may be right about that. That may be what's coming. But that also speaks to our lack of permanence. Just as modernity changed farming from something that everyone did see, you know, there was a time in the past where everyone was a farmer, where everyone had to do a little bit of everything so that they could just live. That was just necessity. You were part farmer if you were going to eat. As modernity changed farming from something that everyone did to something that few did for the many, it also changed creation, creativity, from something that everyone did to something few do and most observe. As our momentary boredom shrinks, as our moment-to-moment -moment boredom is relieved, as we just click on Facebook, we click on Instagram, we do these momentary things that give us that hit, as we live in a way that causes us to have no momentary boredom, our existential boredom grows that in direct proportion to how little momentary boredom we have to suffer, our overall boredom, our boredom as worldview, grows. When we value the Grand Canyon less than the likes that we'll get from a photo of it, the Grand Canyon is no longer a wonder, it is merely the means to an end. Rather than to stand in front of the Grand Canyon and think about the history of America or the history of the Earth, or the complexity of all the different people that have stood where you're standing to look at it, now everyone is in one mode. Sell. 
Every experience that we go through is an opportunity to sell ourselves. It's as if we've leased our minds out to a marketing company. Every experience is transformed into a sales opportunity to increase our personal fame. Over time, we lose the ability to really buy into anything. No experience truly captivates us anymore. We lose the feeling of what it was like for our brain and our body to be in the same place. Percy characterized this feeling this way. Imagine you're a member of a tour which is visiting Greece. The group goes to visit Parthenon, but it's a bore. Few people even bother to look. It looked better in the brochure. Some people take half a look, mostly take pictures, remark on serious erosion by the acid rain. You are puzzled. Why should one of the glories of Western civilization, viewed under pleasant circumstances, good weather, a good hotel room, good food, a good tour guide, be a bore? Now imagine what circumstances viewing the Parthenon would not be boring. For example, you are a NATO colonel defending Greece against a Soviet assault. You are in a bunker trapped in downtown Athens. Binoculars are propped up on sandbags. It is dawn. A medium-range missile attack is underway. Half a million Greeks are dead. Two missiles bracket the Parthenon. The next will surely be a hit. Between the columns of smoke, a ray of golden light catches the Parthenon. Are you bored? Explain. So now I'm going to read a piece about what happens in digital communication and why it doesn't fulfill the things we need. Not just so that we can say, oh, the past was better than the present, or the past was better than the future, but that there's something that they had that we don't have. There are plenty of things we have that they didn't have, but we need to observe what they did have that we don't. So I want to talk about, if you don't remember anything else from this podcast, this little piece right here is key. The other day I was listening to, it's happened many times actually, I've been listening to podcasts about like tech stuff, like video games and stuff, and a guy was saying that he, he was talking about a video game and he was saying, oh yeah, I like to play this game while I'm watching TV, so I just like put on a TV show in the background and then I play this game. And he said that very nonchalantly, but that caught me as bizarre. The idea that a video game would not stimulate you enough that you would also want to have a TV show playing in the background, that your preferred state of leisure is to have your brain distracted between the ups and downs of what's happening on a TV show and a video game at the same time. And I find this in much of our digital uh, consumption, that once we are consuming, that once we're participating in digital communication of some kind, that we often just try to add a layer to somehow fill what is missing in that we think that if we just add another layer of distraction that that will maybe fill the void. So here's a piece on why digital communication does not fulfill us. This is by Nick Morgan in his book Can You Hear Me? How to Connect with People in a Virtual World. In the virtual world there is an emotional void which is precisely the problem. The virtual world is inherently uninteresting because it takes survival out of the equation. It takes human interest out of the equation. And it takes emotion, the basis of pattern recognition, out of the equation. What's left no longer engages our connection with other people. 
A virtual conversation is not important to our unconscious mind. Survival. It's not engaging human interests, and it's not moving emotion. So in this previous piece when he said that if you were to go view the Parthenon in Greece, you know, this old historic structure, that you'd probably be bored by it. And if you weren't bored by it, you'd just kind of see it and take a picture and that'd be it. But that if you were to view it through the piles of smoke as Greece was being attacked and you were defending it, then you would no longer see it the same way. You would begin to see it as the thing that it really is. You would begin to see it as this vital, real piece of reality. And so I believe that this second quote is actually an answer to that. That in our digital society, what is lacking in everything from a Zoom conversation to just impersonal interaction overall is that it's not dangerous enough. The part of our body and mind which is evaluating our survival is not engaged. When you're at home on a digital call, your survival instinct is not activated. It is not engaging in the way that a face-to-face -face interaction is because, again, a face-to-face -face interaction has a lot of variables. And the unpredictability, the sort of low-key danger is what activates every aspect of you as a human. And it is not emotionally engaging. All of this is tied to danger. That digital communication, that digital life, that video games, that everything digital, that digital as a way of life, removes danger that if you are having a conversation in public with a friend of yours, there, that your sense of survival is activated. Because at any point, anything could happen. But that when you remove that danger, you become bored. Even if you're trying to stay interested, even if you're trying to pay attention, there are other parts of you, your subconscious mind, that are bored. And so they start reeling. They start reeling for more stimulation because they are not being activated. So if you remember nothing else, if you find yourself down a rabbit hole of YouTube or social media and you begin to feel that no matter what you take in, that you long for something more, that possibly the answer is to turn off the things, is to engage with your actual life. Because even a conversation with your neighbor, which seems boring, which seems mundane, that it will activate your survival instincts, that it will have more variables, there's more at play, there's more at risk. And so it will take you as a whole, it will captivate your all of your senses in a way that a digital experience cannot. So in this previous quote when he says, how come if you were to just go visit as a tourist this, uh, you know, this Greek structure, you'd be bored by it. But if you were to see it in a time of war, when it was about to be destroyed by a missile, you would not be bored by it. What are the elements that are missing? Danger. We need a small amount of danger in order to feel invigorated, to be taken by an experience. What are the two other elements that are present if you were defending Greece against the Soviet assault? What are the other elements? So there's obviously danger. What are the other elements? 
The next element that changes is control. To better understand the nature of the malaise, we must look to Percy's later works. In one of his later novels, Percy attributes much of this to Descartes. Ever since the famous philosopher Descartes ripped the body loose from mind and turned the soul into a ghost that haunts its own house. In his Meditations on First Philosophy, Descartes undertook the project of establishing certain knowledge through subjecting all of his beliefs to methodic doubt. Now listen to this. This sounds like philosophical just gobbledygook. This is very key. Descartes undertook the project of establishing certain knowledge through subjecting all of his beliefs to methodic doubt that the natural result of a society which posits that everything about God, about anything of value, is only what we can understand, that as we have killed God and taken his place, that we are now in a detached, deformed, anxiety-ridden state of mind. That if we are truly at the wheel of the universe, then we cannot escape both our emptiness and our anxiety. That to kill our anxiety, to kill our emptiness, we must acknowledge that there are things we do not know. We must recapture the mystery of God. Think about this. God is where all good comes from, where all true comes from. And life is filled with suffering. How do the things coexist? We need to recapture our awe at the sight of what God is. We must break the things that we have done to make him seem small. He is good, but he is not safe. So the things that make us bored, the things that make us suicidal, are our lack of danger. Having too much control. Out of both our narcissism and our fear, we pretend that there are no mysteries. And we know that there are, and that breakdown in our mind, the fracturing in our mind, as we pretend that everything can be explained, but we know deep, deep below that, that that is not true. But if we were to acknowledge what is true, it would break our view of the world, that there are things which we cannot explain. There are dimensions that we cannot fully understand. That there are things we cannot create, that we did not create, that we cannot destroy. And that takes control away. That much of our suicidal fog is our lack of danger, our fake facade of control, and as a result, our lack of things to die for. The third key thing that would cause you to be fully engaged if you were fighting off the Soviet invasion. The difference between fighting off a Soviet invasion to have your binoculars propped up on a bunch of sandbags and to be under missile attack. The last thing that would cause you to see things differently to cause you to be able to see this historic monument there in Greece. The difference between being under attack versus seeing it as a tourist. The last element is that if you were under siege, if you were under attack, if you were in war, then it would be very clear that you have something 
to die for, that you have something to die for. That modernity is characterized by not enough danger, too much control, a facade of control, and having nothing to die for, having no hills left to die on. Modernity turns things that are more into less. The solution is therefore anything that turns less into more. God doesn't usually show me big things, but he often does show me that small things are themselves big. So here are the few things which I think can cause us to break out of a sort of voyeuristic, consumption-based fog of suicidal feelings. The first one is to participate in your actual life. Your actual life is likely not glamorous. The people that you could actually talk to in real life are not glamorous. The way you look may not be glamorous. The amount of money you have may not be glamorous. But it is real. As we have given up our sort of... As we have given up the joy of creativity... We now just view the people that are the best at whatever it is. We now just view the people which are at the top of every aspect of life. We see our own life as nothing by comparison, and we disengage with our own life and just try to consume other people's experiences in hopes that it will one day tell us who we are. Participate in your actual life. Creativity, and by creativity I do not mean drawing. I mean when you go home today. Try to make your wife laugh. Try to make your husband laugh. Do something creative in your actual life in a small and seemingly mundane way. One of my goals is to every day make my wife laugh. The next thing is to ask yourself these questions. What do I want to die having done? The noise keeps us from these questions. These questions are very painful because they may reveal to you that you've wasted the last 20 years. But they aren't going anywhere. So they must be asked, what do you want to die having done? Do you want to die at the end of the track that you're on? Something I heard Andy Stanley teach, which has haunted me ever since, is that direction determines destination, not intention. That if you intend in your mind to go one way, but your feet are walking the other way, you will end up where your feet were walking, not where your head was looking. Direction determines destination, not intention. What do you want to die having done? Do you have any hills that you die on? And if not, get some. Because until you know what you die for, you don't know why you'd stay alive. The next question, what anxiety is this noise helping me mask? Social media, pornography, whatever the noise is. What is the noise helping you mask? What is it covering over? What is it helping you cope with? What is the very painful thing that you are coping with by using the noise, by putting your head into the cotton candy machine that is modern life? The noise, the aimless white noise of modern life is helping you escape from something most of the time. What is that painful thing that it is causing you to not have to look at? The only lasting way around a problem is through. 
that for a while you can go around, but eventually you will have to go through. And then the last question. What could be done today in 30 minutes to push back against my overhanging anxiety and get today one step closer to what I want to die having done? What do you want to die having done? What anxiety is the noise helping you mask? And what could you do in 30 minutes today that would push back against the noise, push back against the anxiety, push back against these suicidal feelings of aimlessness? Well, how could we push back? And in order to have enough faith to do that, in order to believe that life has meaning, in order to believe that your life has meaning, that we are not here to just observe and then die, we must step down from our fake post of control. We must stop pretending that everything can be understood. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like these little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That perhaps in a previous era, we were perhaps less under the lie that only what we could understand was real, that only what we could manipulate was worthwhile. That maybe in some ways a previous era had a little bit of childlikeness, as, our, as we came to the throne of God. And that as we've left that, that the more we leave our childish appreciation for the wonder of what life is, for the incomprehensible oddity of what we think of as normal life, that as we walk away from the wonder of that, that as we walk away from our childlike appreciation for being alive, that we inevitably take the reins of the universe, and with those reins come the anxiety and the meaninglessness of a culture which is ever-increasing in suicide. But that to push back against this is to say there is much we do understand, and that's wonderful, but there is much which we do not understand. And God, may I come to your feet and say, help me. Of all the things I know, of all the things I pretend to know, sometimes I don't know why I'm here. And I need you to love me. And I need you to show me who I am. Peter Kreeft said, To know yourself, you must know God, just as to know Hamlet, you must know Shakespeare. I love you guys.